1 Corinthians chapter 7 is what we're going to be in today. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 7. And Brooke, if you could close the doors back there, it would be great. Just so we don't hear their screaming. (laughs) Married couples fight. We all know they do. It's no shocker to anyone who's married here and anyone who has any of the younger teens who are here. We know that married couples fight. We hear it. Hopefully it's no shocker to know that Maggie and I fight. We do. We don't fight as much now as we did during our first year of marriage. That was quite a year. (laughs) But we're still, you know, we're still getting to know what it means to be married to each other. As anyone who's been married one year, seven years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 70 years, anyone married more than 70 years here? I don't think so. Everyone is in a process of getting to know their spouse, getting to know how to be married to them as your spouses change, and as you change, through all the stages of life. Anyone want to guess, statistically, what the top three things that all married couples fight about are? Anyone want to guess what those top three things are? Amy? Money, finances, yes. That is number two. Who else? Donna? Kids, Kids, children, that is number three. So you got number two and you got number three. Who wants to say number one? Family? Nope. Good quest. Good question. Faith? Nope. Nope. Yes. Yes, it is sex. That is the number one thing that all married couples fight about statistically. Some couples never do. Some couples do. Today I'm going to talk about what couples fight about, but I'm not going to be talking about finances or children. That leaves me with one thing. What does that leave me with? You said it once. I heard someone whisper it up front. Yes, sex. It's what we're going to be talking about today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The chapter brings up huge issues. We're actually going to be spending the month of September on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't worry, this is going to be the awkward sermon. The rest of them are just going to be divisive, not awkward. We're going to talk about sex today. Next week, we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. The third week, we're going to talk about what it means to be content where God has placed us. And then the fourth week, we're going to talk about singleness. That's the roadmap for this month as we follow Paul through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Each topic is very important because humans, instead of building a set of beliefs based upon what the Bible says, lots of times we look at the culture around us And we say, what does America tell us? What does our schools tell us? What do our friends tell us? What did our parents tell us? And we base this set of beliefs all on our culture. And how many times does our culture get it right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to warm you all up. We can talk today. We can laugh today. We can blush. We can run screaming and crying if you want to. Our culture doesn't get it right. Sometimes we look at the culture and say, no, I know that's wrong. So we look at our church and we say, what does the church tell us? Unfortunately, throughout the centuries, lots of times our church, whatever church it was, didn't base their set of beliefs on the Bible. Instead, they looked at culture and said, we know that is bad. Therefore, let us create a theology as a reaction to the culture. 
And whenever, whenever we create a theology as a reaction to the culture, we always get it wrong. So sometimes our churches, even in their statements of faith, say, this is what we believe is right, this is what we believe is wrong, and we can turn to Scripture and say, actually, Scripture says the exact opposite. We as humans need to be standing firmly on the truth, not on culture, not on church, but on the Bible. That's what we're going to be doing these next four weeks, beginning today as we talk about sex. Let's read the passage in 1 Peter chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. 1 Peter chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each, woman should have, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. Each one has this gift another has that. Will you pray with me? Father, Lord, thank you that you are a practical God. You've told us truth from the beginning of life to the end on how we should live in this world in a way that is pleasing to you according to your standards, and you've made it clear. Father, forgive us for mudding it up for adding things to it and taking things away. Forgive us for skipping when we are uncomfortable or in our confusion disregarding it or even changing it. Lord, we are your people and we want to know you and how you want us to live. So today, Father, even in this passage, I ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand it, to know you better, and to live as your people more completely. Lord, as I am up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So as with any good sermon, we must define our terms, and this entire sermon is going to be a definition of terms. Our roadmap is we are going to ask three questions. We're going to ask, what is sex, where is sex to be enjoyed, and how is sex to be enjoyed? And if you want to, you could create a little tally on your note sheet of how many times I say the word sex. And I could give you a prize later on if you get it right. <laughs> First, we must ask, what is sex? I'm not here to give a medical definition. We all know what it is. Some of us have experienced it. Some of us have not. We've learned about it in many different ways. Some of us learned about it in school health class. Others of us learned about it in whispered conversations in a school bus. Other of us learned about it here, there. Perhaps we learned about it from our parents. 
though maybe we didn't have as adequate a conversation with our parents as we wanted to. Maybe we look at our own kids as they grew up and realize we had a better conversation with them. We all know what sex is, medically, biologically, so I'm not going to cover that part. Some of you might have started squirming your seats, thinking I was going to get a little more detailed on what sex is or is not. Rest assured, I'm not. I'm going to go deeper into what sex is than just medical and biological. I'm... <laughs> so, I, I have a session on sex in my premarital counseling. It's always a lot of fun. Because I I, I'm there and I'm trying to get them used to something that they are going to experience. And, and, and sometimes I am the first person who has talked unabashedly about all aspects of it. And their faces get beat red and they start squirming in their seat like, what are we doing? It's, it's great. Today I'm going to talk about sex theologically though. We're going to talk about theologically. The Bible says that sex is a gift. It's been given by God to be enjoyed. Sometime over the next several years, I'm not going to tell you when, but sometime over the next several years, we're actually going to be doing a study in Song of Solomon. And it's going to be great. The church is either going to die or it's going to grow by leaps and bounds. I'm not sure which it's going to be. Song of Solomon talks about a lot of things relationally. And one of the things it talks about a lot about is sex. And it uses some crazy imagery for it. Song of Solomon 5.1 is one such passage. The author is talking about having sex with his wife. And he says in Song of Solomon 5.1, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. The terms he uses in this passage, I'm not going to explain them to you. But the terms they use, you can figure them out for yourself. He is talking about sex, using all these different imagery for it. The thing that God created. He says it is good. God gave us sex as a gift designed to be good. Think about when God created the heavens and the earth. He created all the animals, created man and woman, placed them in the garden. In Genesis 1.28, he says that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over every living creature that moves on the ground. This command that God gives at the beginning of time during the creation can only be fulfilled through sexual intercourse. Something that God created during the six days of creation as a reflection of his creative acts. Something that we get to do to reflect who he is. And then in Genesis 1.31, God says that he saw all that he had made and it was very good. Everything that he had made during those six days, including sex, and he said, it is very good. Sex, as God's gift, something that he created to be very good, does many things. We all know it is essential in making babies. We're doing some things, interestingly, that I'm not going to get into, but in medical terms where you can have a baby without engaging in this, but we won't get into the morally of that sort of thing. But normally, sex is essential to making babies. God designed it also to bring enjoyment. We would agree with that. Uh, and it glorifies God. Sexual intercourse, when husband and wife come together, it glorifies God. I bet most of you who are married... Do not think about how you are glorifying God when you are with your spouse intimately. 
It's not like when you are with them and enjoying each other, all of a sudden you shout out and praise, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Anyone do that? No, I don't think so. Most couples I talk to about this concept, like look at me shocked when I talk about how the act of sex glorifies God, but it does. How does it? Well, we can think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it's just one of those vanilla verses that you can throw out on anything. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's a pretty blanket statement. But theologically, we can think about sex even just deeper than that concept. Sex deeply glorifies God because of its symbolism. Because of its symbolism. I love how Tim Keller writes in The Meaning of Marriage. He says what I could say, but so much better. He says, sex is glorious. We would know that even if we didn't have the Bible. Sex leads us to words of adoration. It literally evokes shouts of joy and praise. Through the Bible, we know why this is true. John 17 tells us that from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been adoring and glorifying each other, living in high devotion to each other, pouring love and joy into one another's hearts continually. And then he throws a bunch of passages out there. Sex between a man and a woman points to love between the Father and the Son, as we see in 1 Corinthians 11.3. It's a reflection of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the very life of the triune God. Sex is glorious not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, but also because it points to the eternal delight of soul that we will have in heaven and our loving relationships with God and one another. Romans chapter 7 and 8 tells us that the best marriages are pointers to the deep, infinitely fulfilling, and final union we will have with Christ in love. No wonder, as some have said, then sex, that sex between a man and a woman can be a sort of embodied, out-of-body experience. It is the most ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely to be imagined to look at the glory that is our future. I bet they didn't teach you that in school. No, it's not what we talk about. That's what happens when we allow the culture to tell us what truth is. God says sex is a gift that has been given to us. But while God designed sex as a gift, it has been distorted by our culture and all the cultures throughout the centuries. Last week, when Tim Wurstel was here talking about the end of 1 Corinthians 6, he talked about ways that we have distorted sex through all these waves of sexual morality. He talked about adultery. He talked about pornography. He talked about homosexuality. We could, talk about, we could talk about premarital sex and cohabitation, and the list could all continue on and on and on, all these ways where we've taken God's gift and we have distorted it to be something else. All these ways of sexual immorality boil down to the fact that we've actually taken this act of sex that we do and we've turned it into a God. God designed sex to be a way of glorifying him, a way to point our eyes to him, as we experience the pleasure that he has given us, but we have taken the creation and turned it into the God that we serve. As Paul hints at in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. Romans 1, 24 to 25. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is ever praised. Amen. We worship the passion 
and the pleasure of sex, and we pursue the passion and pleasure of sex wherever and however we want to. We could turn on TV and we could see the TV shows and the commercials and see how much sex is exalted and even worshiped through that. We could look at movies, we could read it in magazines and books, all these ways that our culture exalts sex and says, pursue it, pursue it, pursue it, however you want to. If it feels good, do it, worship it. We could go to schools, we could sit on buses in the classrooms and see how kids are being taught that sex is something to be pursued. It is something to be grasped, something to be followed no matter where it takes you, even away from the God who has designed it. Unfortunately, while culture has turned sex into a God, the church, the past 300 years, has pushed back against the culture. Instead of looking at the Bible and saying, okay, what is the truth that is here? The church says, that is bad. Therefore, everything pertaining to it is bad. God designed sex as a gift. Culture says sex is a God. Church says sex is taboo. Let's not talk about it. Let's take this gift that God has given us, bring it down to the basement stairs, kick it underneath it, and say it's not there so it'll grow moldy and smelly. But what happens when you take something that's good and you try to hide it. All these kids say, but wait a minute. I think that's good. And, and obviously the church is not going to talk about it. My parents probably aren't going to talk about it because they hid it away from me. But boy, I smell it. it smells kind of stinky from their end, but I think it might be good and they go and try to figure it out on their own. All of the couples that I have counseled in premarital counseling have said that they have learned about sex from school health class or from the school bus. And most of them have looked me in the face and said they wished they had heard about it from their parents. And we wonder why premarital sex is the norm, and why cohabitation is outpacing marriage these days. Because God gave us a gift, and we as the church said, not gonna touch it, and we let the culture take over. We need to start speaking truth again. What is sex? God says sex is a gift. Sex is a gift that we get to use to glorify him. So, First question, what is sex? It is a gift that we get to use to glorify him. Next question, where is sex to be enjoyed? Where is sex to be enjoyed? Let's dive into our text, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 2. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 2, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The first phrase that Paul throws out here, saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a wife, is what the Corinthians had written to Paul in their letter toward to him in the day. And Paul is responding to that. It's not Paul's opinion, it's the Corinthians. Like so many of the Corinthians' teachings, they had taken a small excerpt of what Paul said and they had amplified it. Paul said sexual immorality bad. Corinthians said, oh, everything sexual must be bad. And Paul says, wait, no, 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 no. Sex is good. 
God designed husband and wife to have sex and to enjoy it. So where is sex to be enjoyed? In marriage. There's no argument about it. Everyone who studies the Bible, whether they are Christians or not, they will tell you that the Bible teaches abstinence until marriage. They just disagree whether the Bible is applicable to us or not. They all say it teaches it. They just say, well, it's not applicable to us. Paul says, because of the temptation for sexual immorality, a husband should have sex with his wife and the wife should have sex with your husband. Now, if you look at your translation and you say, my Bible doesn't say anything about sexual relations. It uses other words there because other translations do use other words there. The original language, the terms that it, the original language is, uses is what's called idioms, figures of speech. We have them in America, in English. We use figures of speech. We say one thing, for, but we mean something else. Like I could say there is a fork in the road, and there's not a literal fork in that road. It just splits right there. Same thing here. In the original language, the terms that are used here are only used for sexual relations. Paul's not talking about whether someone should get married or not here. He's not talking about whether someone should hold his, their wife's hand or not here. He's talking about sex in this passage. He's saying, yes, sex and marriage. What does that mean for sing singles? Paul's not talking about singles here. End of chapter 7, we will talk about singles. Paul says here, sex is to be enjoyed in marriage. But how else is sex to be enjoyed? We're going to dive in a little deeper. Where is sex to be enjoyed? It is to be enjoyed in celebration. It's to be enjoyed in celebration. Paul uses some very interesting words here. Listen to them in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul talks about marital duties here, that we have a duty to each other. Husband has a duty to wife. Wife has a duty to her husband. Marital duties include emotional support, financial provision, safety, but also includes sex. And that's what we're talking about today. We're not talking about the other things. We're talking about sex. Husbands and wives have a duty to provide sex to each other. In a little bit, I'm going to actually talk about the word duty. I mention the word duty now because it shows up in the text and because I need to talk about the nature of the duty. Yes, husbands have a duty to have sex with their wives and wives have a duty to provide sex for their husbands. But why? Why? Why is the question? Why? Because there's a desire to have sex. He says... Do not deprive each other of sex. Why? Because there is a desire there. Husbands have a desire for sex. Wives have a desire to sex. The desire might look different for guys and girls. It, would anyone agree that sometimes the desire looks different between guys and girls? Are we all still awake? Okay. That desire might be spurred on differently between guys and girls. Would we all agree with that? Yes? Okay. Anyone blushing with shame yet? The amount of time between peak desires might be different between guys and girls, where some people want it more often than others. Would we agree that there is a difference there as well? Yes? Okay, you're getting more animated now. But the point is, there is a desire there. 
God created man and woman to have a desire of sex. And when two people come together with the same desire, it becomes a celebration. Yesterday, we had a wedding ceremony here. We all came together with the same desire of seeing Camden and Sonia united in holy wedlock. I just love saying that term, holy wedlock. You don't get to say it very often. It was a celebration because we had the same desire. Sex, same desire, come together, becomes a celebration, an ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely to imagine, look at the glory that is our future. As Song of Solomon says in Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, my beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle and like a young stag on the rugged hills. Talking about sex. Using all the imagery there. Talking instant, incidentally about the celebration of sex. I'm fully aware that most people who are in this room are older than I am. And most people don't like talking to someone who is younger than them about sex. I'm also fully aware that as your body changes and as your body grows, sex changes as well. The desire for sex diminishes significantly. And sex looks different after you turn 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and on and on and on. Health problems come up, things change, it happens. But then, even then, sex can still be a celebration as we creatively enjoy each other and the bodies that God has given us. It may not look the same as when you were 25. It might not react the same as when you're 25. It might be completely different than when you were 25, but you're still enjoying who God made you to be and how your body's changed. Paul is pushing boundaries in this passage. He is teaching that sex is to be a mutual enjoyment whenever, however, it happens. So, where is sex to be enjoyed? It's to be enjoyed in marriage. It's to be enjoyed as a celebration. Finally, before we get to the last question, sex is to be a safeguard. It's to be a safeguard. It's to be enjoyed as a safeguard. Paul teaches that husband and wife should intentionally pursue one another sexually as a guard against the attacks of the devil. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Later in the sermon, I'm going to talk about this time of abstinence that Paul is sharing about. But right now, consider the safeguard that he's talking about. Paul's teaching that husband and wife should intentionally pursue one another, spend time together sexually because of lack of self-control. We've talked about how God has designed us with a sex drive. He has. Sometimes that sex drive, especially when you're younger, gets so strong that you lose control. Though I know some who are older than 80 who still have a strong sex drive. That sometimes gets out of control. This is not to say that when we sin sexually, it is our spouse's fault because they did not have sex enough with us. That is baloney. I've heard that excuse, and it's a lie from the devil. What it does mean is that we need to be open with our spouse, and we need to ask their help as we struggle against the Satan's schemes. 
I know a pastor who would work out at a YMCA. And yes, he lived in a more urban area than we do. But he worked out at this YMCA. He went there every week, same time. Pretty soon, a young gal started working out at that same YMCA at that same time. They became friends because, I mean, it's okay to be friends. It's okay to be friends. They got worked out, started chatting, talking about life, talking about this, started really enjoying each other's company. The pastor started rearranging his schedule to make sure he would be at the YMCA at the same time that this gal was. And then one day as he was at the YMCA working out next to this pretty gal, the thought went through his head, what would it be like if we went to a hotel room? But immediately when that thought went through his head, he realized how far he had gone, thankfully. And you know what he did? I have a lot of respect for that guy. He went home directly and told his wife. Because he realized that he is to be one with his wife. And his wife is the person that God has given him as a protection against the devil's schemes. Talked to his wife about it. He talked to the church about it. And he purposely changed his schedule so he would work at a completely opposite time than what this guy was. Never saw her again. I know another guy, another pastor, who became addicted to pornography. Was convicted about it wanted to change, went to addictions recovery group, counseling, went through all the nine yards. But he still was tempted. But he vowed, no matter what time of day it was, whenever he got tempted, whenever that thought went through his mind, he would pack up his computer, pack up his books, leave his office, go home. Because his wife was his safeguard. His wife was the one he wanted to be unified with, not the computer screen. It got in the way a lot with his work but that's what he did. I know a gal who was in a marriage where they were not one emotionally. Her and her husband. Her husband did, was, did, never met her emotionally where she needed. Got to know a coworker, A guy who really cared for her, who listened to her intently. All that she was going through all of her pains with her kids and this, that, and the other thing. And she became attracted to that guy because he was there for her. He cared. We know that guys are turned on visually and physically more often than not. And gals are turned on emotionally. They need that emotional out. And when a gal has an emotional affair, she's one step away from having a sexual affair. But she caught what was going on in her mind. She went to her husband and told him about it. He realized his mistake and started practicing 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 because the Bible has everything it wants to say about marriage. And he started living with his wife in an understanding way, being there for her emotionally. And now their sex life is better than ever before. All these people looked at their life and they realized, I need to be one with my spouse. God has given me my spouse as a safeguard, therefore let me run toward them instead of running away from them. Where is sex to be enjoyed? Sex is to be enjoyed in marriage. Sex is to be enjoyed, number two, is a celebration. Number three, sex is to be enjoyed as a safeguard. So we've answered what is sex. We've talked about where is sex to be enjoyed. Last question, how is sex to be enjoyed? How is sex to be enjoyed? I'm not up here to tell you about positions and avenues. That can be 
for a couple's counseling session. I've done that before. It's fine. In closed doors, Maggie and I will talk to you about it, or I can offer you good Christian books about it if you're interested in that sort of thing. But Paul mentions three ways for sex to be enjoyed. Three ways. First, sex is to be enjoyed in service. Yes, sex is a desire to be pursued. We all, sexual desire of desire, I will pursue it with my spouse. But sex is also a gift to be given, a service we offer the one we love. Now we get to that duty word. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Part of the joy of sex is working for the pleasure of the one you love. Sex is a dance where we get to have mutual enjoyment. We work for each other's pleasure, a husband for his wife, wife equally for a husband, always giving, giving, giving. Now I have to step carefully because sometimes when we throw out this duty word, where sex is something that I must give. People take that and run where it shouldn't go. This does not mean that sex is owed to something, someone, or that sex should be forced on someone. It doesn't mean that someone should be forced to do sexual acts that they're not comfortable with or sexual acts that hurt them. Whenever something is forced or when something brings hurt, that is not love that is abuse. And the Bible talks strongly against those who abuse. What I am saying is sometimes we are not in the mood to have sex. Would we agree with that? Yeah? You can, you can admit it. It's okay. You can admit it. But we love our spouse. And because we love them, we serve them for their pleasure. And it just so happens that as we serve them for their pleasure, we get pleasure too. And we realize there's so much more in that moment than before. Now, just in case some gals in here think that I'm pointing the finger at them, I am not. Because that's, you know, that's what you hear all the time. The guys always want it, the girls never do. I, I, I have talked with many guys, more than I can count on one hand, who have confessed to me that their wives have more of a sex drive than they do, and they've turned down their wives multiple times because they are too tired, and I look at them and say, that shouldn't be. <laughs> but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And that statement is very radical because Paul is giving women of his society equal authority in a marriage relationship. They have the ability to say, back then it was like the woman was to serve the husband. But Paul gives the woman the ability to say, hey, I enjoy sex. Let's celebrate together, husband. And the husband cannot say no. But they must submit to their wife and yield their body to their wife because they love them. Again, not something you force on something, not something you owe, but a service you give. Our bodies are gifts we give to our spouse in service to them. Sex is enjoyed in service. Sex is also enjoyed in abstinence. It's also enjoyed in abstinence. There's a misconception in some circles that one must say yes every time your spouse asks for sex, and that is not true. But you say, Pastor, you just said. Yeah, yeah. I'm not contradicting myself. Paul allows for times of abstinence, just not for the normal reasons we give our spouse. The normal reasons we give our spouse are based off of sin and selfishness. 
But there are times of abstinence. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 6. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm saying this as a concession, not as a command, Paul says. There are certain times that we need to be focused on seeking God's direction. And in those times, fasting is needed. Some people fast food, not go out and buy fast food. Some people fast food. Some people fast electronics. Some people fast social media. And just as an aside, I'm here to say that I think everyone should fast social media from now until when Christ comes home. Other times it's necessary to fast sex. We fast that which is distracting us from seeking God. A case in point, there are some men who are addicted to pornography and to other, other forms of sexual expression that are sinful. And these men, to seek help from God, need to fast from sex because those sex with their wife is bringing up all of that sinful junk that they filled their minds with. And every time they have sex with their wife, they have the urge to go back to pornography. It happens. And these men need to fast from sex to seek help from God. There's other, way, other times to do that too. The, the important guidelines are that Paul gives is first, this time of abstinence is to be mutually agreed on. It's not one party telling the other, we're fasting no matter what you want to say. It's both of them coming together, agreeing on it. One spouse can't force it on the other. Two, this time of abstinence must be for spiritual growth. It's not because we're tired. It's not because we're not in the mood. It's not because we hate our spouse at the moment. But it's for spiritual growth. Finally, this time of abstinence must have a scheduled end. It can't be, eh, you know, we're going to fast from sex until we come back together and decide it's going to be on. Must have a scheduled end. We're fasting for two weeks, and we're going to pray about this issue together. Every time we would have come together in the evenings, we're praying. We're going to cuddle and pray. And let me tell you, if you're fasting from sex for two weeks, and every evening you're coming together and cuddle and pray, by the end of those two weeks, you really want to be with each other. It'll do amazing things for your marriage if you actually pray together every night. Sex is to be enjoyed in service and abstinence. Paul says these times of abstinence must be the exception, not the norm. If it is the norm for your marriage not to come together sexually in some way, I understand old, time, old people, it's going to do something different, but you can still have a sexual celebration in some way, even if it's just cuddling. If, 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 Sex is not the norm. Something is wrong. Sex is to be enjoyed in service and in abstinence. Don't worry, I'm almost done. Finally, sex is to be enjoyed in worship. That's the odd topic that I started with. I know most people are not thinking about God when they're in the heat of the moment of sex. That is not in your mind. But as we said, sex glorifies God. Sex oral intercourse is a way of worshiping God. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. We don't know Paul's marital background. We know that he was single at this time, but we don't know his past. People who were Pharisees to the status that he was, we have no instance of any of them being single. 
In fact, in the Jewish law, it seems that those people who were Pharisees, to the extent that he was, had to be married. So we can pretty much 95% guarantee that Paul was married at some time of his life. At this time, he is single. It could be that his wife died. That's a distinct possibility. It's also a possibility that his wife left him after he came to faith in Jesus Christ. That is a possibility as well. We don't know. All we know is now he's traveling around and he's single, and we're going to talk about singleness in three weeks. But here it says that everyone has a gift from God. He believes that his singleness is a gift because he can focus on ministry. At the end of the day, he doesn't have to go home to his wife and kids. He can go from sunup to sundown, crash in bed, repeat the process the next morning, continually telling people about Jesus Christ. And he doesn't have to worry about his wife and his kids because they're not there. But he's not bashing marriage here. He says everyone has his gift. He has a gift of singleness. Other people have the same equal gift from God of marriage and all the blessings of marriage, including sex, gifts of God. What do we do with gifts of God? Some of you may not like what I'm about to do as I do a parallel in passage. Paul talks about gifts here in 1 Corinthians, speaking of marriage and singleness. Peter talks about gifts too. Same type of gift in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 to 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. Peter says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And then he gives a not all-inclusive list of different gifts. He says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, the power, and forever and ever. Amen. Peter only gives two gifts, speaking and serving. But we know God gave a whole bunch of other gifts than those, those two, including the gifts Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, gifts of singleness and gifts of marriage. Peter says we use the gifts that God has given us so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Marriage, the blessings of marriage, including sex, there's a gift that God gives. Therefore, we have sex with our spouse so that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. If we do not have sex with our spouse, God is not praised through Jesus Christ. If we have sex with someone else than our spouse, God is not praised through Jesus Christ. We come together, we have sex with our spouse so that God may be praised. How is he praised? Well, we praise him for what he is allowing us to do because sex is a gift to be enjoyed, a celebration. And in that celebration, we get to praise him. We praise him that we get to bless someone else with our gift because when we come into sex, sexual intercourse and all the different forms of it that it might be and we have this mindset of I get to bless my spouse and wow them, God is praised. And if you think about that, the next time you're taking off your spouse's clothes, you may not think so now, but in the moment, if you're thinking about how you can praise God through what you are doing with your spouse, sex is all the sweeter because it brings it to a different realm than what we thought it was before. Sex is to be a gift enjoyed in marriage as a celebration, as a safeguard. It is to be enjoyed in service abstinence, and worship. Now, I know everyone comes from different backgrounds, and some people might have never experienced a sexual relationship that has been good. 
or it has been marred in the past, in fact, brought trauma to you, and you've never gotten to the point where you can see sex as a gift, something that is a celebration, as worshipful to God, and you don't know how to get there in your mind. That's what Maggie and I are here for. I understand I'm younger than most people here. But God has given us to you to help you bring you to the point where you can worship him in the way that he has called you to. So if you would like to talk about anything I've said, whether it's sexual experience in the past, sins that you struggle with sexually, it's no shame to be open and transparent and let us know. Please come. We'll talk. We'll pray together. Pursue God together and help each other live how God has called us to live. Sex is all these things. Sex ultimately points us to Christ. Now normally, sex is not a segue into communion. I'm not going to pretend that this transition isn't going to be awkward. But the oneness that we have with our spouse is the oneness we get to enjoy in Christ. I'm not being sexual here. We don't have a sexual relationship with Christ. The relationship that we have with Christ is calling us to something deeper and closer than we can imagine. Our sex with our spouse gets us close, intimately, closer than we can be with any other being and any other thing. But our relationship with Christ, he calls us to, is even closer than that. Even better. And communion is a reminder of that oneness, a reminder of everything that Christ went through, that we might have a close, intimate, eternal relationship with him. So, as we scrub sex out of our minds, we're going to turn to communion. I'm going to ask someone to go down uh, and get Sharon and Karen and the kids up. I'm going to ask John to drop the screen uh, and cue up. As we move our minds to this, I would like to sing a song to you. This is the special music for today. The words are going to be on the screen so you can read it because the words are very important. If you know the song and you want to sing along with it, you can, or you can just listen because sometimes it's nice to listen and reflect on the words that are there. If you could make sure the the organ, the electric piano is on too, John, that'd be great. I need my music.